Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. I hope and I pray that you're looking forward to being reminded about the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, that is the foundation for every good gift and every perfect gift that cometh down from the Father above and will see us safely into His everlasting kingdom. It is by the grace of God that I preach to you this morning. It's by the grace of God that you're here to hear it. I hope that those who are watching this video or listening to an audio tape will stop a moment and go read Psalm 124 and focus on the first words of the first two verses. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Without the Lord, we are all hopeless, and it is the Lord Jehovah himself that has delivered us from every evil and danger, and will deliver us safely into his everlasting kingdom. And he was on our side. He's always been on the side of his people that he chose for his own honor and glory. And I hope that you'll read Psalm 124. Let us now turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, as the Apostle Peter and his companion Silvanus closed out this epistle with these words. Verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying, that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. Amen. The true grace of God testified by the apostles and their helpers. And I want to testify and exhort this morning of the true grace of God. There's more than one grace in this world. I will show you that the Apostle Paul will say, I do not frustrate the grace of God. There is frustrated grace in most churches. The Apostle Paul said, the grace of God that was bestowed on me was not bestowed in vain. There's vain grace in many places. The Apostle Paul said, there are ungodly men foreordained to this condemnation, who turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. So we shall condemn lascivious grace. But first of all, let's glory in the grace of God. In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18, Moses said, show me thy glory. In verse 19, God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass before thee. And you will see and you will know that I am gracious to whom I will be gracious. That is the goodness and that is the glory of the everlasting God. And we want to rejoice in that this morning. Peter and Silvanus exhorted and testified of the true grace of God wherein these saints stood. And I want you to stand in the true grace of God as well. It's been discouraging for me recently to debate by email with a brother on the other side of the earth who wrote to us and said, we believe exactly as you believe in the unconditional salvation of God. Well, after you explore a statement like that a little bit, you find out 
that they have frustrated the grace of God along with most others, and they don't truly believe in unconditional salvation. Religion, religion in general, by the design of Satan and for the profit of men, cannot stand the grace of God. Grace lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ and makes Him an all-sufficient and glorious Savior. Satan cannot have it. The grace of God that makes Jesus Christ an all-sufficient Savior delivers men from the fear of death, and therefore they no longer buy candles or pay for masses in the Church of Rome. The grace of God that sets Jesus Christ up as an all-sufficient Savior and chooses those who will be saved allows no room for all the organizations and projects of men to save the lost for the cause of Christ. And so religion is set against the grace of God, though they love to sing amazing grace. But their grace is not very amazing. If I have to buy candles to help my dead husband, I speak as a widow, Make it from purgatory to heaven. That's not very amazing grace that such a great change can occur in the spirit world by my purchase of candles. That's not amazing grace. That's pitiful and disgusting grace. If I preach to you a message that those in hell had just as much done for them by God the Father, by Jesus Christ on the cross and by the Holy Spirit during their lives, that isn't amazing grace. That's profane and blasphemous grace because it leaves the work of God of no value at all, let alone amazing value. We'll sing amazing grace because it's our hymn. And we know the man who wrote it, a little bit of him, who was a wretch set against the high God of heaven who blasphemed and profaned his holy name. And I speak of John Newton, a slave trader for the nation of England several hundred years ago, who in the midst of a storm was humbled down to the ground and the dust by the mighty hand of God so that he cried to the Lord to save him. And he spent the rest of his life writing the hymns you love to sing and that are in our hymnal, because he knew the grace of God in truth. Though his church tried to corrupt him from it. Amazing grace is our song. And we'll sing it. Religion is opposed to the grace of God. Because when the grace of God is taught, there's no place for man. There's no place for works. There's no place for payments. There's no place for fee income. There's no place for sacramentalism. We're dependent upon the grace of God who said... I I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Can grace be taught in one sermon? I doubt it. But you better hope it. <laughs> Acts chapter 15. And verse 11, the apostles and the elders 
of the whole church. And the churches are gathered together. And they're looking at the Gentiles. They've heard from Peter. They see the Gentiles have been saved. Gentiles are calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And worshiping God in truth. And humbling themselves before the scriptures. And here's what they said in verse 11. The Apostle Peter speaking. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now this is Peter, a Jew, a chosen apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, looking at the dramatic conversions of Gentiles like Cornelius, which he had just described. And he said, but we believe, we believe that we shall be saved even as they. Now, you would think that he had that backwards. They shall be saved even as we. But he said, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Because it was a more remarkable evidence of amazing grace to save a man of the Italian band named Cornelius. Acts 15.11 We believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most every Christian denomination speaks of grace, sings of grace, talks about grace, and names their church after grace. But few of them truly know the grace of God. The scriptures have to be our criteria for the grace of God. Look at Acts chapter 20 with me. Acts chapter 20. The gospel is the news of God's grace. The gospel isn't God's grace itself. The gospel is the news of God's grace. It brings to light the grace of God to our dark minds. Look at Acts 20 and verse 24. Acts 20 and verse 24. The Apostle Paul speaking to the elders at Ephesus. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. The Apostle Paul's life was to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. The word God's good spell, the old English word good spell, is good spellings or good news, good words, glad tidings of the grace of God. And Paul's whole life was committed to that. And his ministry was committed to that. He didn't, nothing moved him. He didn't care that he was being persecuted because he was testifying and preaching such a great and glorious and gracious message. Look at verse 32. Verse 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified, those that God has set apart to be His holy children, they are built up by the Word of Grace. And that is the written Word of God and the preached Word of God, which is the Word of His Grace. And that's what men bring when they preach is the grace of God. What is grace? Now, I've explained this to you before, but I want you to think about it. Grace is favor given by someone to you 
that you do not deserve. Grace is favor given to you by someone else that you do not deserve. I remember it being explained to me as being unmerited favor. I don't like that definition. They define grace as unmerited favor. Now let's think about the word merit for just a moment. If grace were merited favor, then you had earned it. Because you would have merited it. It wouldn't be grace at all. There is no such thing as merited grace. Because if you merited it, it's not grace. It's the payment of a debt. Right. Now, the Catholics believe in merited grace. There's grace in the church. As long as you keep all seven sacraments and have your widow buying candles for you when you're gone, that's merited grace, and it's no grace at all. If we look at unmerited grace, that means I did nothing to deserve God's grace. That's not good enough. That's what kept the angels that did not sin in their first estate. Because they were innocent before God and God preserved them in that state of innocence and holiness. They're called the holy angels. They're called the elect angels because God chose to preserve them as his holy angels as opposed to those who were allowed to sin against him and be bound in chains for everlasting punishment. That would be unmerited grace or unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Because it was favor bestowed that they didn't merit, but they didn't demerit. I want to explain to you grace being demerited favor. Not only did you not merit it, you merited his wrath. We merited God's judgment. And he gives us the opposite of that. So grace is truly demerited favor. We chose to be the children of the devil. Is that not true? Did not our first parents choose Satan over God? We chose to be the children of the devil. He chose us to be his children. That is demerited favor for us to be adopted by the living God when we chose to be the children of another, even his enemy. We chose darkness and foolishness as our course of life. He chose light and knowledge for us. That's demerited favor. We're blessed abundantly. Grace is demerited favor. You know all that we believe in this church, so I do not need to repeat it to you, or I would be wasting precious time in a sermon. You know how we look at salvation, and we see seven proofs that God saved us unconditionally by grace alone. Right. We see the five phases of God's gracious work toward us. God chose us by grace before the world began. It tells us that we were given His purpose and grace in Christ before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9 In the fullness of time, by God's grace, Jesus Christ came into this world and laid down His life to purchase eternal redemption for us. By grace alone, He died. What else would have sent Him? Because the human race deserved it? It was grace that sent the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. During our lives, the power of God's grace was demonstrated toward us in that we were regenerated from a state of death and sins to have a heart that came alive toward the things of God and wanted to pursue God, fear God, love God, and obey God. That was all by grace. And it's a doctrine that I hate. 
and I hope you will hate it with me, that teaches that men in a state of death do something to activate that grace to be born again. It is that grace that causes them to ever turn toward God. The Lord Jesus Christ himself told Nicodemus on a dark night, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then it is grace that calls men into the ministry and sends them to us and opens our hearts by grace that we attend to the things that are preached. Amen. As the heart of Lydia was in Acts 16, 14. And then it will be God's grace that is going to call your dust and your ashes. I did not mean cremation. I meant your dust out of the earth and put you together again and give you an eternal inheritance in heaven that we call glorification, election, justification, regeneration, conversion, glorification, the grace of God is evident in all of them. Amen. And we're thankful for those things. I have read to you this morning, Exodus 33, 18 and 19, where the Lord said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. But let's turn to Romans 9 and see the Apostle Paul quoting that from the life of Moses and the book of Exodus. Romans chapter 9. The doctrine of grace is God bestowing favor upon undeserving men who truly merited his judgment and damnation and giving them eternal life by his pure and free choice because he's a sovereign God who does according to as he wills in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. This is the God we worship. The blessed Lord Jehovah who saw, who passed his goodness before Moses. Romans 9.15 For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Notice the will that is stated in there four times. I will. I will. I will. I will. It is the Lord that wills His grace, His mercy, and His compassion upon any man. I will four times. That is pure grace. If you willed it, if you chose it, if you accepted it, if you decided that you liked the grace of God and that you would go ahead and take it, that it's laying on the table available to anyone who wants it, then the grace would be your will. Because their theology is, His will does not extend His grace to anyone. It only puts it on the table for everyone. But it does not give it to anyone. But He said, I will have mercy. And if God chooses to be merciful to someone, then there's going to be mercy toward them. They don't have to agree with it, accept it, decide about it, or even like it. Necessarily. Although he helps them do those things toward it. So we have that 16th verse, and I hope that we're all established in that 16th verse. So then. What do you think those words are there for? So then. 
So then, because of verse 15, so then because God has plainly stated in the Old Testament that the Apostle Paul brought forward and repeated in the New Testament, four times I will, so then it is not of him that willeth. The will of man is not involved in getting the grace of God. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Where does mercy come from? In the salvation of men and the deliverance of them? By the will of God. This is the true grace of God as it's taught in the Bible. And this is the only grace that gives all the honor and glory back to God. If we are involved to the least degree, we cheat the grace of God. Because then we can take some credit. We can take some praise. We can take some glory for that grace. But God has said that he will not share nor give his glory to another. And that he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Because it's all of grace. And I mean that when I say it's all of grace. And before I get done, I will take 99.9% of other men who say it's all of grace and show them that they're liars. Either ignorantly or maliciously. Because it's not all of grace to them. They will always end their sermons with but. In order for you to have that grace, you need to. And that is not in the word of God. Because if the blessed God said, I will be merciful to Jonathan Crosby, he's going to be merciful to Jonathan Crosby, whether Jonathan Crosby knows about it, loves it, believes it, accepts it, decides for it, or otherwise. But I'm thankful that his grace extended even to telling me about it. And changing my heart so that I love it. And so that I'm here this morning before you preaching about it. That is grace. That is grace. Verse 17. Another description of it. An illustration from the word of God. Romans 9.17 For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. That I might show my power in thee. And that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom he will, he hardeneth. Do you mean to tell me that the God of heaven can raise up a little boy. Whose mother rejoiced in the day of his birth. Who had him suckled at her breast or the breasts of her handmaidens who watched him grow up and go off to his first day at school, who watched him graduate from kindergarten, who watched him graduate from the eighth grade, join the high school football team, become very proficient in driving a chariot, learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, take over for his father when he passed away, and became the ruler of the greatest nation on earth, Do you mean to tell me that God would raise up a man like that for the purpose of simply getting glory to his own great name by crushing Pharaoh? Amen. You say, I don't know if I like that kind of a God. I pray that his grace will teach your heart to love him because that's the way he is. Amen. 
Let me tell you something about Pharaoh. And take each of these words to heart because they're true about you. He got a whole lot better than he deserved. Right. He deserved to be in eternal hell. He enjoyed the finest things that the world ever had to offer. He had more women, wine, song, pleasure, power, glory, praise, privilege, luxury, blessing than any man of his generation. But he did not give God the glory for it at all. He worshipped dogs, insects, and dog do. He had no concept at all of a creator God. He... He was as guilty for Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden as any man. And he fulfilled it every day of his life. He deserved an immediate eternity in hell. And God gave him a great deal of offerings to show him that he was the God of heaven. He had magicians and astrologers in Egypt that could plot the movement of heavenly beings, heavenly bodies. And yet he did not give God the glory. They knew more about the stars of heaven than any other nation on earth at that time. But they did not give glory to the creator of those stars. Don't you feel sorry for Pharaoh. He got more than he deserved. He got better than he deserved. But I want you to know something about the God of heaven. That's what we all deserve. And so he says in verse 18, Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. There's two categories of men, Pharaoh and his people, those who were shown grace, mercy, and compassion, and those who were not. And he goes on to say in verse 21, hath not the potter power over the clay? God is a potter, and we are clay. This is the truth. I, I testified and exhorted of the truth of the grace of God. Peter and Silvanus wrote, hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump, to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor. Doesn't he have that power? Doesn't a power, a potter have that power and that right, that authority, that privilege to do with the clay as he will? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? What if God chose to display his wrath and his power in some of mankind taken from the one lump? And, verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Not all Jews, not all Gentiles, but God's called people from among both categories. What if God, is there some unrighteousness in that kind of a choice? None at all. He is the blessed God of heaven, and we all deserve eternal judgment, and he has graciously saved some. Praise his great and glorious name. He is gracious, and he has been gracious toward us. He was gracious in Eden by making it so simple for our first father. And he's been gracious for us in sending a second Adam to deliver us from the first Adam. Grace is glorious in the Bible. God's demerited favor shown toward sinners. Grace saved an Areopagite 
named Dionysius. When the Apostle Paul preached about the grace of God on Mars Hill with the most educated, intellectual, learned, red men that may have ever lived, they mocked him because they didn't understand the grace of God. This is Acts chapter 17. They mocked the Apostle Paul as he preached about the grace of God. But when the Apostle Paul turned and left that assembly, a man followed him out. Dionysius, the Areopagite. I wonder why he was called the Areopagite. Do you think he spent a visit to the Areopagus once in a while? Or do you think he was there a lot of the time? Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Grace saved Dionysius. Grace saved David and Bathsheba from the law of God that said the adulterer and the adulteress shall both be put to death. Grace saved David and Bathsheba and gave them Solomon to that union. Grace is glorious. Grace saved an Italian in the Roman army named Cornelius. And there was no one around to help that grace. God saved Cornelius. So that when Peter met him, Peter looked at him. And God had just dealt with Peter so that Peter discerned and perceived with accuracy. He said, of a truth, this is the grace of God in truth, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness shall be, is accepted with him. Praise his great and glorious name. That is the grace of God. Of every nation. Brethren, you better be thankful because you were born in the wrong nation. We have a great nation. And mom will even include you in a great nation. My mother was born in Canada. We'll, We'll allow her to call her nation a great nation this morning. But that wasn't good enough because we were not born in the commonwealth of Israel. And so Peter said of a truth, I perceive that in every nation, God is able to save by grace. And when Peter related that four chapters later, five chapters later, remember, Acts 15, 11, he said, we believe through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as as Cornelius. Because the salvation of Cornelius was dramatic. That brother that just spoke from the back of the room, ask him about his brothers and sisters. He was saved by the grace of God. There is no reason for him to be here in this room at all, nor for him to love the things that we love. It's by the pure grace of God that reached down and plucked one brand out of the fire. Grace saved Esther, who lost her parents, was taken captive, and was living in a pagan nation. How How gracious was God toward her? Grace put her on the throne of the Persian Empire, Queen of Persia. Esther. Grace. Grace saved a Gadarene who had a legion of devils within him, who spent his time among the tombs, cutting himself and crying out, bound with chains often by the people of his city. He could not be bound nor tamed. But the Lord Jesus Christ crossed the sea in a storm for one man, the Gadarene. God's grace finds men. Do you know what the God of heaven said before he ever created the heavens and the earth? 
He said, I will be gracious on the wild man of the Gadarenes. And he performed all the operations of the grace of grace to save that man. And what was the message to that man after Jesus Christ saved him? Go home and tell thy friends what great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion upon thee. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It was the grace of God that saved Joanna. You say, who's Joanna? She was the wife of Chusa. You say, who's Chusa? Herod. Steward. She followed the Lord Jesus Christ and ministered to him out of her substance. Brethren, the pagan and perverse and profane government of Herod Antipas, Antipas supported the Lord Jesus Christ through Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the steward of Herod. Praises great and glorious name. Amen. And when you find Joanna in your Bibles, you remember where she came from. The grace of God reached into that tormented government appointed by the Roman Caesar and supported the Lord Jesus Christ. Kings and queens shall be thy nursing fathers and nursing mothers, the Old Testament prophet had prophesied. I thank God for the glory of grace in saving Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, who was in the city of Philippi and went out by a riverside where prayer by women was made as she sought God and to worship Him. The Apostle Paul preached and it says the Lord opened her heart that she attended to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. That was grace. He could have kept that heart closed so that she would have remained in her Jewish superstitious darkness or pagan darkness or a combination of the two. But the Lord opened her heart. I thank God for the grace that came to Mary Magdalene and cast seven devils out of her. And the grace that sent the Lord Jesus Christ to Mary Magdalene, first of all, after his resurrection. Is that gracious? The Lord Jesus Christ is gracious. You say, I'm not important enough for the grace of God. Look at Mary Magdalene. Seven devils. A woman. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared first to Mary Magdalene. The glory of God's grace. I see a skeptic sitting under a fig tree. His name is Nathaniel. Philip comes to him and says, I have found the Messiah. Now that's quite a statement to a Jew. I have found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Can a good thing come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? I'm glad God saves skeptics. Amen. By His grace. By His grace. And that was an Israelite indeed, in whom was no guile, when the Lord Jesus Christ got a hold of him, and he worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ there. I thank God for the grace of God that saved Peter after he denied his Lord three times and said, Feed my sheep. 
You're forgiven. It's forgotten. Feed my lambs. I thank God for the glorious grace that saved Rahab and her household. When a whole city fell flat and was destroyed and everything was consumed. But she was delivered by the grace of God. She married a man named Salmon. They had a son named Boaz. That is the grace of God. I'm thankful to Saul of Tarsus, the most zealous man of his religion, and an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, was saved by the grace of God. I'm thankful to be able to read in the Word of God and see a thief hanging there, railing and cursing against the Lord Jesus Christ one hour, and the next hour, asking for the Lord to have mercy upon him. I'm thankful to see the glory of God's grace in a woman of Samaria who had already had five husbands and was now living with a sixth man. And the grace of God appeared to her and delivered her from her foolish and wicked ignorance. Brethren, grace has saved us from so much. God's demerited favor has been shown to us. It's delivered us from blindness so our eyes can see the truth. It's delivered us from Catholicism and the daughter churches of that Roman whore. And the errors and superstition, ignorance and abominations of that church. It has saved us from death that we so much deserve. We shall live forevermore by the grace of God. It has saved us from hopelessness by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, showing us the first fruits of them that slept. It has saved us from the justice of God by giving us justification through the death of Jesus Christ for us. It has saved us from the lake of fire. It has saved us from lies that were in our right hand that we could not let go of, except He pried our fingers open and saved us from our own lies. In Isaiah 44 and 20, it's described that way. We've been saved from the strong man because a stronger was sent for us by the grace of God. It is all of grace. It's the choice of God to show grace toward us, and He has shown it abundantly. God's glorious grace. What are you here this morning for? I can take each one of you and talk about your families, your ancestors, and show you that it was God's grace that made a difference in your life. There's a difference in your life, brother, with your brother. Is it because you're better? Or is it because God was gracious? God was gracious. And it's true of everyone in here. It's true of everyone in here. The grace of God reaches down and saves us. And we must always give our thanks to the grace of God because it's what he's done for us, not what we have done for him that has made that difference. We are privileged people today, whether you know it or not. I will tell you, and it's not to build your love for this church, although you should love it. You are all privileged people. You have so many blessings, and those privileges are by the grace of God. Amen. Amen. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. The grace of God is glorious, powerful. It's wonderful. 
We want to sing about it. We want to thank the Lord for it. We want to do everything we can with it. We want to teach it to our children. We want to say with them, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, then we had been swallowed up quick into the pit of hell, death, blindness, ignorance, and the judgment of God. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul wrote, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If you add anything to the grace of God, you frustrate it. And the whole world, the religious world out there, is frustrating the grace of God. Because they don't accept it the way I just taught it to you from the Bible, that it's God's choice to bestow favor on those that have deserved His judgment. They frustrate the grace of God. It began with the Judaizing legalists of Jerusalem that came out and said to the converted Gentiles, unless you get circumcised and look like us under your pants, you cannot be saved. And so Paul has to write the epistle to the Galatians for that point of doctrine. And he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. But it began with those Jewish legalists. We read in Acts chapter 15 verse 1 that certain of those from Jerusalem that believed came down to Antioch of Syria and preached that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And that's what called together the council of Jerusalem there in Acts chapter 15. It began with the Jews. The Apostle Paul said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. I'm not going to add anything to the cross of Christ, which we'll deal with tonight in Galatians 6.14. God forbid that I should glory in circumcision or anything else added to the cross of Christ. It continued after the Jews were gone with the sacramentalism of Rome. Along came the Roman Catholic Church and came up with their seven sacraments. What is the word sacrament? What does it mean? Sacrament. It means a visible sign that conveys inward grace. Grace? Is that how they word it? Exactly. An outward sign that conveys inward grace. So they have seven of them. I'll try to remember them. Baptism. What does that mean? Sprinkle a little water, pour a little water on a baby's forehead. Outward sign conveying inward grace. What grace is conveyed by the pouring of that water in the form of a cross? It's got a little oil in it. It's called holy chrism. I don't want you to forget the details. They pour holy chrism on that little baby's forehead. What grace is conveyed? The grace of regeneration. That baby is born again. Then it gets old enough to go to confirmation. And it's confirmed as a child of God and a member of the church. Maybe eight, maybe ten, maybe twelve years of age. After it's confirmed, it gets to have its first communion. It gets to go and have the Holy Eucharist. Outward sign conveying inward grace. The sign is the bread and the wine. What does it convey to them? You're eating the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ and God himself. When you leave that service and you sin, you better go back into the church and confess it to a priest, and he'll give you some things to do called penance. So we're to fourth, the fourth sacrament. 
to where you confess your priest, your sins to a priest and he tells you what you can do to deliver yourself. Then you decide it's time to get married. But marriage has to take place in only one place. A Catholic church. Because it's called holy matrimony. Those two words are an outward sign conveying inward grace of the Roman Catholic Church. Then after you're married, you wish you weren't married. So you get rid of your wife and you take holy orders. And you become a priest and she becomes a nun. Holy orders, ordination, outward sign conveying inward grace. And then when you're dead, even though you've done all these things, you better have a priest there for last rites, otherwise known as extreme unction. It's extreme because you're dying or dead. That's sacramentalism. God's grace is conveyed through outward acts. Who followed them? The Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Methodists, the Presbyterians. They say, we don't believe, we, we have separated from the Church of Rome because we're Protestants. We protest against seven sacraments. We only believe in two or so. That's what they do. And you know what? A lot of Baptists come along and say there's two ordinances of the church. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. Where, show, where, where is that found? Where is that found? There's two ordinances of the church. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. I didn't know baptism was an ordinance of the church at all. And I can't find the two ever separated as being exceptional ordinances either. When I read the New Testament, I find dozens and dozens of ordinances. Right. All an ordinance is is something God has ordained for us to do. Right. And they don't convey grace. That's why we're Baptists. They frustrate the grace of God. The grace of God is freely bestowed by God himself at the choice of his will and given to us before the world began with the purpose and grace of God that was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. They frustrate it by adding all these things to it. And so the Roman Catholic Church, with all of its abominations and traditions, has frustrated the grace of God after the Jews did it. And then the Protestants do it. And most Baptists have now subscribed to sacramentalism by the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is their sacrament. An outward sign conveying inward grace. The gospel is the good news of what God has already done. They convert it, though, and pervert it, and corrupt it, and turn it upside down, and make the gospel the means of you getting God's grace. That it is conveyed from me, the preacher, to you, the hearer. Not in word form, not in information and knowledge only, but conveyed through the preaching is a, is a persuasive power for you to accept Jesus as your Savior, decide for Jesus, invite Him into your heart, in order to have the grace of God regenerate you. If you have to do that first, to get the grace of God to regenerate you, what condition are you in when you're doing your believing, inviting, accepting, and deciding? A state of sin and death and rebellion against God. You're in the flesh. And it's a work of the flesh to get into the Spirit. They're sacramentalists. 
They take the gospel and they give it sacramental power. They don't want to believe in baptismal regeneration. They don't want to believe in transubstantiation. So they have, they're now guilty of decisional regeneration. That it's your will, your choice, your deciding that gets you the grace of God. They teach that God has done equally for all mankind, every individual human being, the same. He's loved them all with an everlasting love. Jesus Christ paid for all their sins on the cross of Calvary, and the Holy Spirit has convicted, drawn, wooed them all. And now it's up to you, sinner, if you want to be saved. That is not grace. That is frustrated grace. Because the grace of God reaches right past through, over, and crushes our will to save us by the will of God. Because if God waited for your will to cooperate with His will, there would be no one saved. And there wouldn't even be anyone here this morning if He didn't override your will on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. That's right. Praise His great and glorious grace. Amen. They frustrate the grace of God with their gospel sacramentalism. And decisional regeneration. How does faith relate to grace? Grace is the horse and faith is the cart. And don't get them out of order. Grace is the horse and faith is the cart. Grace draws faith. Faith does not draw grace. Carts in front of horses don't work well. Grace causes you to believe. You believe because God's grace is already in your life. What in the world are they talking about? Paul told Timothy, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. Apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they might be delivered out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. They get it totally reversed. Sinner, repent, and God will deliver you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. Paul told Timothy, first generation preacher, God has to make that move. Even when you do the best, God has to make that move, Timothy. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia. She didn't open it. The Lord opened her heart. And on and on we could go in the wonderful verses of Scripture that teach us these things. Look at Acts chapter 18 and see what the, what Apollos did after Aquila and Priscilla had taught him the way of the Lord more perfectly. Acts 18 and verse 27. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, that's Apollos going to preach in Corinth. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. Amen. Had believed through grace. Oh, it's grace that causes men to believe. Well, of course, that's what the whole Bible teaches. That if it weren't for the grace of God, there's nothing in us. It would be foolishness to us. It's foolishness to the natural man. It's the grace of God that gave us a spiritual man that loves the word of God and wants to obey it. 
grace. They frustrate the grace of God. I hate frustrated grace. God's called me to preach against frustrated grace. It is the purpose of this church, chosen by God in these perilous times of the last days, to earnestly contend for pure grace against frustrated grace and to make it known by our website throughout the world for anyone that wants to know it. And if no one wants to know it, we will still have done our duty before our blessed God. And we shall soon meet Him and we will have stood for pure grace without frustrating it by adding anything to it, including your faith. Those poor people trust their eternal life on their faith. The only way they can ever say that Jesus had anything to do with their salvation is by the confusion of their own minds. Because Jesus did no more for them than every one that is cast into hell. They frustrate the grace of God. They believe in their believing. Their assurance is in their believing. Their assurance is in a date of their deciding. Their assurance is in their inviting. Rather than God's performing. I'll take God's performance, thank you very much, by the grace of God. There's lascivious grace. Look at Jude verse 1. Help me finish. It's the next to last book of the New Testament. Jude chapter 1. Don't get lost in the other chapters of Jude. Jude 1, 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares. Oh, Paul warned the elders of Ephesus about this. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ by their works. They denied the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, by turning the grace of God into lascivious living. Lascivious, unbridled lust, unchaste, impure living. They turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. That God's grace can save you and you can live any way you want to. God's grace saves us to live a holy and a righteous life to please the God that was gracious toward us. Don't you ever forget that. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. You know, I've heard men say, if I were to believe in the doctrine of election like you believe it, then it doesn't matter how I live. Because if I'm elect, I'm going to heaven. If I'm not elect, I'm not going to heaven, and I can't do anything about it. Well, bless your heart. You know, you don't want to show them Romans chapter 3, verse 8, do you? Because it says men that say that are on their way to hell. Because the grace of God teaches us no such thing. The grace of God teaches us like it taught the Apostle Paul. He did everything in his power to serve with that grace. As you prayed this morning, brother, the grace of God that was bestowed upon him was not in vain, but that's my next point. Not this point. Right now it's lascivious grace. The grace of God does not leave us to live any life that we wish. Look at verse 1 of Romans 6. What shall we say then? If you read Romans 5, if you read Romans 5 and read about the second Adam, that we were saved, justified, made righteous, and given God's grace in the same way that we became sinners by Adam's representation for us, if you read that, you begin to think that salvation is quite sovereign. That God is quite sovereign in salvation. And Paul knew that. 
So look what he does immediately. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? What conclusion should we draw from Romans 5? That praise the Lord. God saved us. Let's go out and enjoy life. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God hates lascivious grace as much as he hates frustrated grace. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? God has saved us to live holy and righteous lives. He has worked in us the grace of God for us to work it out in fear and trembling. Philippians 2:12 and 13. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 tells us that when the grace of God in truth appears to men, it teaches. It teaches that salvation is all of grace? No. It teaches that we're on board the ark and the rest aren't? No. The grace of God, when it appears in truth to men, teaches us that? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live our lives holy and soberly, looking for the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what grace teaches. And if I don't preach that, which I do, then it would be lascivious grace, because we would just be sitting here basking in election and predestination, and we would turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. If we ever knew the grace of God at all. Men that turn the grace of God into lasciviousness have no claim to the grace. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15.10. I'm almost done. 1 Corinthians 15. A third kind of bad grace. False grace. 1 Corinthians 15.10. The Apostle Paul said, But by the grace of God I am what I am. Oh, do you love those words? Do you believe those words about yourself? But by the grace of God I am what I am. I'm not much. But anything good I've ever done for the Lord... It's by the grace of God. Is that how you live? Is that how you think? Is that how you pray? Is that how you talk? Is that how you treat others? I am what I am by the grace of God. That's what Paul said. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. That is our attitude toward life. I am what I am by the grace of God. And that grace that God gave me, He didn't give it to me in vain. It wasn't wasted on me. It wasn't profitless put on me, because I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. God changed Paul's life totally so that he believed the Lord Jesus Christ was truly the Son of God and the Lord of heaven and earth. And the gospel of Jesus Christ was the truth, and that Judaism was passing away. That was all of grace. But the Apostle Paul labored more abundantly than any other apostle. I was not a whit behind the very chiefest of the apostles. He could say honestly, by inspiration, about himself. And yet he would still say, yet not I. That's not because I am such a great and diligent person. It's because the grace of God stirred me up to do that. But when he stirred me up, I did do it. You can receive the grace of God in vain. Second Corinthians chapter 6, we, I went over that a few weeks ago when we were there. 
Hebrews 12, we can fail of the grace of God by not living up to what God expects out of our lives. We disgrace the grace of God when we do that. And it's a shame. It's vain grace. And we don't want to have that. We want to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be increasing in the grace of God. I want you all to be like Paul. He may have called you to be an apostle. But can you labor more abundantly than they all? Can you labor more abundantly in serving one another? Loving one another? Praying for one another? Living a holy and a righteous life? Training your children? Keeping your families together? Keeping the unity and peace of our church? Let's labor abundantly in that grace that he's given us. Whenever we have an opportunity, let's tell others about the grace of God. Let's lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not let that grace be in vain. If God's been gracious to you, by free salvation that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, do you know it? Do you live like it? If you understand the grace of God, then it ought to cause great thanksgiving to come out of your heart and mouth. If you truly understand the grace of God, it should cause much thanksgiving to come from you. Amen. If you understand the race of God's grace, it should cause abundant and diligent labor for him. Right. The Apostle Paul felt that his whole life was in a race to win the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Not that he was going to win eternal life by running his race well, but that he could honor his Lord, his gracious Lord that had saved him by running well. There's a race in grace. And God's called us to that race. And there's a great cloud of witnesses watching us. Are we living worthy of the grace that he's given us and that he's taught us? We have been most blessed. Tonight we come to the Lord's Supper. And there we're going to see the great transaction of that grace that was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But it's now made manifest. And by the preaching of the gospel, it, it brings that life and immortality to light. Amen. I hope you love the grace of God. I hope you love to read the word of God and see its grace on every page. And I hope you love to look around this assembly and see the grace of God in so many lives. Amen. And to know it in your own life. I am your pastor by the grace of God. And you are my brothers and sisters by the grace of God. May we live worthy of that grace. And may we bring glory to it by the way in which we live.